Sandy Clark, uh, ex-Accenture MD, who's been a, a client, friend and contact of mine for a number of years now. Um, he now sits on our uh, advisory board and has for the last two to three years. So I'm looking forward to, to sharing this conversation Andy and I had around a number of things. One is my favorite program that I've run um, in our business, Potential Squared, because it's Greenhouse. Greenhouse has been run as a program right across the world, including Philippines, India, and the UK. And we've been running it for now just over 15 years. And each year, it gets approval for budget from Accenture, mainly because of the impact it has. So we'll talk a bit about that. So Greenhouse is the first topic. We'll then go on to one of the outputs of Greenhouse and talking about how you can bring together groups of junior leaders, managers, and get some amazing ideas. And Andy will talk about a concept called liquid workforce that came out of that greenhouse program. And then we'll move and shift into the, the world of working with global structures uh, and organizations. And we'll talk about the work that Andy did in terms of weaving together cultures and teams across the world from India to the Philippines to the UK in his work. And then we'll end with some, some concepts around innovation, how to scale up innovation, just taking figures of moving from 4,000 people when Andy started with the Philippines and Accenture up to 40,000, how you scale and you move uh, to working in those, those sizes of organization and the pace of change within those organizations. So I'm delighted to have Andy on the podcast and hopefully you'll find as much from this conversation as I did and do from working with Andy on our advisory board and before. Enjoy. Andy and I met each other a while ago on a program called Greenhouse that we work on for Accenture. And Andy was one of the, the dragons or the investors in that program. And that's where we first started working. But Andy has been working with us as an advisor on our advisory board for the last over two years and has been instrumental in terms of shaping some of my thinking and, and the ways we're working in Potential Squared. So I'm delighted to be able to share the recording today with you of some conversations around some of the key things that have had an impact on Andy. Andy, welcome. Thank you, Colin. Good to be with you today. Thanks for the invitation. Excellent. Andy, maybe just to talk to the listeners around your background, maybe give them a, a flavor of why we have you in the advisory board. Actually, that'd be a good reminder for me. Why are you in the advisory board? And then secondly, just talking a bit about your background that would, would help people to focus their minds around what, what you've done and what value you can add to them today. Yeah, okay, Colin, let me start there. A uh, big chunk of my career as a managing director at Accenture, working primarily around client operations, outsourcing of technology and client operations. I've had the uh, privilege of working in many different markets, many different countries across Asia, India, Europe, and the US, and spent a lot of my time with our people and teams working on client projects on a wide range of, of topics. And really, my experience is around big transformation projects, building out client operations, outsourcing to the delivery locations of choice, and taking time to work those operations across from the client operations into, into the Accenture operations. It's been great to be working with you and your team as a business advisor since leaving Accenture a couple of years ago. And I think my client operation experience 
and particularly working with people and teams and products and merging those together, hopefully, has provided some insight for your business as well as we've worked together over the last couple of years, Colin. And definitely, Andy, and, and I was only joking, but you do add incredible value. And I'd like to pick maybe two or three areas today to focus in around that experience. And greenhouses is obviously the one that, you know, I always say every year when it kicks off, it's kicked off again this year that I always talk about it as my favorite program. But I'd love to for you to, to maybe explain to people what it means to be part of Accenture and uh, experiencing greenhouse in that context. Yeah, I too, Colin, have really fond memories of Greenhouse having been part of it for probably two or three seasons as a dragon. It's one of those that gives great opportunities to connect with people at all different areas of of the operation, but uh, importantly, to pick up new ideas and kind of hear what people think are important and what they're working on as projects within the Greenhouse program. So I've got some great memories of it, and you and your team have always done a great job in terms of setting that up and running it. It probably gets some of the best feedback of those sorts of events that um, I've witnessed in my career, probably. And let's go into a bit of the, the depth of that because we both love it. And we've got so many people who are probably listening to this and going, yep, Greenhouse shifted and you know changed my career and changed the way I think and how I operate. But just to give people a, a flavor of what it's about, because it's, it's an action learning group-based program, isn't it? But the concept is about tackling real business issues over a period of time. And you talked about greenhouses, hot housing, those issues through a design thinking process to what we now call investors marketplace, which is, you know, when we called it dragons and dragons then, but the investors marketplace, just give people a flavor of some of the topics and some of the things that would be through there. Because you've had some experience of real successes through that. With yeah, very much, areas. Colin. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the one that I always use as the example was I always remember a very small team. I think they got uh, sort of reduced in size as the program had gone on and they were feeling a, a little bit lonely on the project, but they came up with an absolutely amazing idea and something that still sticks in my memory now. They kind of came up with this phrase that everybody has one hour to give back. And essentially, they were saying that within their projects, within their everyday working life, there's space in their calendars or space in their diaries to give back to other projects or to other operations or to be called on when there was a particular need. And that really kind of caught my attention and they pitched it brilliantly and we invested in it, took the plunge, gave them some project dollars to go and play with, present it back across the the network and to cut was you know, relatively long story short, it ended up becoming part of a liquid workforce model that was adopted and used across a global delivery network. And for me, to see something that goes from like so small, you know, within one of these action learning groups, as you say, to becoming core part of the working operating model on a global network of like 100,000 people plus, it's pretty amazing for an idea to start that small bit of seed funding goes in at the beginning and then it becoming just a big part of everything we did was pretty amazing. And I think that's the the example I always use because it works. You know, there's many more that you fund that don't necessarily come up to fulfillment, but that one just kind of nailed it. It was timing was great. The market was right for it. And everybody enjoyed being part of it because it gave them a new dimension to the way they were working. And it kind of worked in pretty much every physical location in the network 
it worked in different types of operations as well. And so it's always a good example to use, I think, Colin. And you, know, you saw it from the other side of being kind of honing that idea out, getting it ready to be presented to the dragons and then being taken on from there. And I think one of the key things, Andy, that I always look at is the level of these people going through greenhouse are not your senior leaders. And in fact, as you know, compared to other programs, there was always that badge of honor that Greenhouse had about that these were more junior folk who were coming into this. And therefore, the quality of their ideas and the quality of the way they were impacting on the organization, particularly this one, is significant. And potentially, they don't have the opportunity elsewhere to do that in their roles. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, I think that's what I kind of probably learned the most, particularly probably over the last three or four years of working at Accenture, was that the inspiration for my day-to-day work is seeing teams and individuals working in the operation, coming up with ideas, innovations, and bringing them out and giving them the platform to play. You know, not all the good ideas or the, the brainwaves come from the senior people. It's quite often, and in my experience, was nearly always the people working on the floor day-to-day with clients seeing what was going on in with respect to client demands, being fueled and driven by the need to innovate, and being inspirational in coming up with ideas. You know, my job really was to provide the platform for them to play, to listen to them when they came up with these ideas. And I think Greenhouse is one example in the UK where that ran, but there were multiple different programs in different geographies, different continents, where similar programs would run and I guess my inspiration always came from working with these teams walking the floors which I always tried to do whenever I was out visiting the teams and talking to people and seeing what they were coming up with in terms of ideas I don't know if you remember Colin like several years back you know automation was was in its embryonic format today it's part of everything we do but going back several years ago, it was you know, new, innovative, you know, looking to take hold in the market. And some of those ideas from automation were coming out from all corners of the operation and capturing those ideas, investing in them, building them out, making sure they were secure, they were you know, kind of processed properly, documented properly, and then getting them out into the operation so they became standard operating practices was one of the probably the inspirational parts of my role over the last three or four years working at Accenture. So I think that's, you know, is is a good example of greenhouse or automation or whatever the types of subject matters are, building those ideas out and getting them to be operational is a is a key part of, of what makes me tick really. Yeah. And I love two things that you, you talk about there, which I want to just explore further. One is the, the different geographies, the different places that, well, Greenhouse has been, but these projects, types of programs have been rolled out. So the Philippines, one of my areas of passion is working with the Philippines team out there and the growth of that that country and all the Accenture's roles out there. But India was another example. And the, and the cultural mix, one of the things that's always talked about you when I heard in in the business was this ability to weave the different networks and the different cultures together to to identify where strengths and, and development areas are in there to maximize delivery. So do you want to talk a bit about your experience in that area, the cultures? Yeah, I think it was kind of critical in my role, really, Colin, being able to kind of mix and match those different capabilities, different cultures. You know, I always felt that, you know, with the context of 
changing client demands. We've gone through phases over the last three to five years of cycles of client demands changing ever more rapidly. And that drives a lot of the inspiration and the innovation that goes in behind those client operations. And and I think the ability to get ideas or initiatives or innovation topics from different areas and, and weave them together, as you say, to work effectively cross cultures is really important. And, and for me and my role, having a good idea working in one geography actually didn't do me a great deal of good. What I needed to see was that one good idea working effectively in every location, because that's the consistency I needed in my operation. But importantly, clients would require in their operations, the majority of clients I was working with were global. And therefore, when they walked around their operation, be it virtually or physically, they needed it to look and feel the same. And that was really key from my perspective as well, is that the the same idea needed to be effective in each of the operations. And, you know, kind of sometimes those cultural barriers kind of kind of make it a little bit more difficult to get adoption in some areas. But generally speaking, I found that bringing those teams together getting them to operate well, and then managing those programs on a global basis so that you saw that consistency of operation and that liquid workforce was a great example. You know, ideas started in the UK. If I remember rightly, the first adoption was one of the teams in Chennai in India. That's where we played it out first. We had the scale out there. And then very quickly, I remember seeing Eastern Europe, I think a couple of couple of places, then the Philippines picked it up, and then we got it working with the US. And so that is the way to get it. It needs to be consistent across all those locations, but it may start somewhere, be trialed somewhere else, get adopted first somewhere else, you know, and that's that's kind of how I managed to get it to kind of work together really and just keep people connected, I think is the important bit, right? Yeah. I would agree. And I think this connection and collaboration and experimentation you talked about, and this is, is, is a core cool part of that. But it's also, a lot of the times, it's the leadership of getting that collaboration is, is a tricky bit to do, whether it's people have their own particular goals or, or the culture as a, a barrier. My experience in there is I've loved watching almost the experiment of the growth of the different delivery centers around the globe, India, Philippines, and seeing the transformation of mindsets. So the Philippines, you know, their amazing service, amazing almost customer service around how they operate, and then shifting much more to, to being on a sales footing yeah, and understanding that they needed to have some tough conversations in there has been fascinating to see. So, yeah, liquid workforce is one, but also how the the operations teams in those different locations has grown has been huge. Yeah, and if you put it into the context of, of that, Colin, you take take the Philippines as an example. When I started working with them, the operation was some 4,000 people. When I finished up, it was 40-plus thousand people, you know? And so you've got the context of not only the client demands ever-changing, the need to innovate, being very high on the agenda, but then also within those geographies, and the Philippines is only one example. Again, they're also going through the growth as well. So they're having to bring their people on, you know, develop the culture, drive the consistency and behaviors, you know, capture what they do well. You know, so it's some big demands in and around those programs uh, of just growing at the same time. 
Yeah, and I think that's that's what makes some of these examples ever more interesting, because each of those geographies will have their own demands. You know, whether it's you know you look at some of the U.S. programs, you know, some of the programs across Europe, which are kind of very diverse with different markets, and then you have your delivery cent, your big delivery centers in places like China, India, Philippines, Latin America is another good example. You know, where they're having to build teams very very quickly, build their identity and cultures around it as well as meeting client demands and driving all this innovation through at the same time. Yeah. It's a positive version of, you know, getting the impact of different cultures, whether it's Eastern European cultures into the wider community. We've got a number of very good friends coming out of those programs now who have their careers have you know, gone off at an exponential rate on the back end of some of the experiences that almost in, in some ways a playground of being thrown into a massive project and having to to find a way of thriving in it has, has been been powerful. And I'd love to just pick up Andy around the other area that I heard you mention earlier around, which is this this piece about almost failure and and sometimes the right time is not now for projects and having the ability to to at some point say, this isn't working now, we need to can this, we need to stop this from working. I'd love you to talk a bit more about how you your experience has been about what we talk about is the 80-20, 80% of experiments probably failed, 20% are successful. What's your experience? Yeah, and I guess on the back of you know what we've talked about so far on this podcast, there's a lot of projects, a lot of initiatives, a lot of innovation, and a lot of client demands as well. And I think there's a couple of couple of examples I've probably discussed today, Colin. One what is kick off a lot of these sort of what I would call moonshot type projects. And they've all got, you know, they all get set up correctly. They've got the right aims, the right goals, they've got the right sort of footprint in terms of what you're trying to do as, as a team. But I think it's important to recognize and understand when it's time to stop and when it's time just to say fail fast let's close this project it doesn't necessarily mean it gets closed forever but now's not the right time not got the right client demand behind it or there's just too much else going on you know and I think that fail fast you know I always felt I was able to pinpoint when that was the right time to do that you know, because you can stretch people too thinly as well, Colin, right? I think, you know, we talked about this in, in your business as well, right? You know, it's having enough mm-hmm. time and enough bandwidth to be able to focus on the right projects and not take too many on because otherwise you can just do a lot of dilution. So I think that recognizing when to fail fast is, is important and then just saying like, no, let's stop that. doesn't mean it's dead. You know, it could mm-hmm. come back in 6, 12, 18 months time possibly, but just making sure they don't take on too much. I think that, that sort of fail fast point is a key one i think the more complex and probably the more difficult one is where you've got a a high demands from clients you're in in deep into a project and it's not going well and it just feels like every step is pulling you back and it's slowing things down you're missing milestones you know the project financials are under pressure the client's business case is under pressure you know, you, I get parachuted in to assess what's going on and how's it going. And I think those, you know, I can look back and several situations where I should have said, stop. Yeah. All right. Let's just stop this now. We need to take a 
look at why we're doing this, how this part of the operation is is going. And I think if I'd done that more often, it would have had a better outcome longer term. It had almost certainly been more difficult <laughs> to start with because yeah. everybody would have been fiery shots in at you, you know, going like, what are you doing? How are you doing? You know, you can imagine the, the noise that would be generated from that. But I do think, you know, and, and like I mean, generally speaking, I've always felt I was pretty good at kind of pinpointing ways out things and working a way through different and complex projects. But there were certainly times you know, one or two in particular where I should have said, right, stop. We've got to, you know, either pause it or stop it completely. Take time to reflect, work out, you know, the client's business case, the, the way in which the project's moving forward, are the, are the timelines or the milestones realistic? Is the funding right for the project? Are the goals right for the project? And just try and, you know, kind of take it forward in a different path. And I've definitely wished there's one, you know, one or two situations where I should have done that differently. I suppose the, the thing is, if unless you experience those, you don't learn those. So I, I would come stop, pause, reflect, engage piece. But I always, I always remember a story from early in my consulting career where I wasn't working this, but a colleague was. And it was somebody with the CNA retail organization and and they were trying to apply the lessons that MS learned to their turnaround and they tried to deploy them into cna and it was only after about six months that one of my colleagues had a conversation with them in a coaching manner to say are you sure we should be doing this i always remember that that reframe of that decision to stop it turned then into okay so we're stopping this but how can we make this the best ever high street close yeah, how can we ensure that we do it differently? And even in those failure moments, the quality of how you fail, because failure is sometimes gets a bad reputation, but how you learn and how you deploy yourself after that. And I think, you know, for, for me, the examples that you've got from the organization you work with, Accenture, where there's been those inverted commas failures, it is the learning that's happened on the back end of the key of them is the key thing in there. Your thoughts? Yeah, that, that, Big tough decisions, aren't they, Colin? Got a yeah. good example there, yeah. Because quite often a client's view on the project stopping or failing is very different from, say, the supplier's view on that project failing. And you know, there'll be potential of collateral damage around people's careers, and you know, kind of how people are viewed as being successful or not having been successful or failed on a project. And I think the key to that is a you have to back your people. You know, that's the one thing I always try to do in these ideas. Back your people, you've got to give them every chance to be successful. But at the same time, you've got to put this wrapper around it, which says, well, we're just not going to keep going forever. And the easy option is just to keep going, right? And and I think, you know, these pauses and stops are, are super critical in terms of just making sure that the financials are protected, the business case is protected. And at the end of the day, as you say, you know, kind of reframing, pausing, reflecting, and, and reframing a project is quite often the right thing to do. And it's having the the insight and the timing to be able to do that. Right. And I think that timing is quite often critical. If I look back on things, you know, sometimes you can do it and, and it works quite well. Other times you know, timing's not right. So you've got to think about is the timing right for the project as well. I'd love to get your insight. You, you mentioned to me in a separate conversation around the moment when you realize that something's wrong and you're, you're sitting there. And in this case, you're sat somewhere around the globe in a hotel 
probably sort of either over breakfast in the bar. How have you learned to make those decisions for yourself and support yourself through that? Because I, I think those are tough decisions to go through. How have you learned to support yourself? Yeah, they are, they are tough, but I think it's kind of very relevant in the context. This is very relevant for the last year or so, you know, with the, with the pandemic around and COVID, because life can feel very lonely. As you say, Colin, you can get, you know, put in situations where, you know, you kind of go in, look at something, do your assessments, then you kind of withdraw to come and look at what you've done. You could be, as you say, stuck in a hotel room or whatever. And, you know, or more recently, you know, you're in a succession of, of Zoom calls, Teams calls or whatever, and then you're coming back out and you have, you've got to find that time to reflect, you know, feedback, tell the stakeholders what's going on and those sorts of things. And I think you've got to have clarity of thought and I think you've got to listen to the dis- different stakeholders, but you've got to trust your instinct as well sometimes on this, Colin. You know, I think that's what I found kind of works. You, your reputation is built on a number of projects going well or, you know, the way in which you deal with people, the way in which you deal with clients, whatever your role is. And it's important that you use those experiences. You know, where has this been done before? Has it worked well? Has it not worked well? I always remember one of the, my, my colleagues at Accenture saying to me, when I joined, there's always somebody around that has seen or done this before. Yeah. And I think that was one of the best bits of advice I've ever had. You know, and in those critical situations, that's the first question you should be asking. You know, where in my personal network or my working network has this been done before? Who can I call? Who's seen something similar, been there, done it, worked their way through a similar project? And that will always remain probably one of the best bits of advice that I would share with anybody. And I don't know if you, you see that as well, Colin, in, in your working life, but that, that to me has always been one of the ways of being able to work out what the next steps are on a critical project. Yeah, I think there's this too. I see it all the time and I see it to myself, you know, the vulnerability to put in place a, an advisory board, even though it's everybody says, oh, it's best practice. But for me, the first bit I felt when I was having the advisory board was, oh, I'm going to be scrutinized around my thinking, my decisions. And you and I have laughed a number of times. Mm. Halfway through the advisory board, I've had my head on the table with a a need for something stiff to drink to get me out of that that mode. So there's a vulnerability about, is my thinking right? And and being okay to be vulnerable in that space. I think the second thing that's been very useful in the advisory board, and we do a lot of training in this as well, is mentoring having somebody to mentor you. And it's, it's amazing where that mentoring comes from. It's not the likely sources a lot of the times. It's, it's people who potentially just are there to, as a sounding board, a guide, or as you say, have been there before and just say, yeah, I've been there, or I've got a, an analogous or a similar situation. So I think it's, it's very important. The vulnerability, Brennan Brand's vulnerability piece is huge in this. Leaders need to, to get into that space to ask for help, yeah. Yeah, because it gets tough, you know, and it, as you say, to take some of the examples on the, the recent advisory boards where ideas that you have or progress you're pulsing out to the advisory boards gets challenged from different angles because of our experience. And that's that, you know, that's that same example, isn't it? You're going out and checking, balancing what's going on, saying who's done this before or who's seen this before and has it worked or not worked. And I think that's all part of the inputs that you need to get in terms of helping you make your decisions. But that network, you know, and I think 
comes into play a little bit, you know, where there can be times where you need commercial input or you need technical input or you need you know, experience around client situations, you know, and there's different people you need to call on. And you know, I've been very fortunate to work for some great bosses over the years. And in each situation, you know, they've been able to, you know, use them in different ways, call on them for their experience, their input, their, their time or their intervention. You know, and I think that's that's the other thing. That, and I've been quite lucky like that, I know. But it always helps to have those different points to be able to call on when you need it. Yeah, no, I think uh, you're right. That's that, that ability to pick and, and choose who you can call on. But that's the, the great thing about a network, isn't it? It needs to be not just when you need it, but it needs to be cultured in the background to provide you with some different thinking, conscious decision-making. So folks, it is possible to bring together action learning groups of junior leaders, make a significant change that is rolled out right across large-scale organizations like Accenture. It is possible to blend cultures and to, to mix the cultures of countries like the Philippines, India and the UK and bring them together to, uh, to achieve large-scale transformation for clients. And Andy makes it sound so easy to do, and it's not. So it's credit to him for his career in doing that. And one of the reasons we brought him on to be our advisory board member. So thank you to Andy for today, and thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.